Dave Johnson is a uh, police officer in San Jose, California, and uh, he often answers that dreaded call, we've got a 415, which is a family disturbance. And in a book that he had written, he writes of uh, what happened when he received one such call and he arrived on the scene. This is what he writes. He says, I could see a couple standing in the front yard of their home. A woman was crying and yelling at the man who was standing with his hands in the pockets of his greasy overalls. I could see homemade tattoos on his arm, usually a sign that he had been in prison. Walking toward the two, I heard the woman demanding that he fix whatever he had done to the car so that she could leave. He, res he responded only with a contemptuous laugh. I began to talk to the man. She turned to me and asked if I would make him fix the car. The other officer came forward and we separated the couple to find a solution to their problem. It says, I began to talk to the man who told me his wife was having an affair and was leaving him. I asked if they had gone for counseling and he said he wasn't interested. He said he was only interested in getting back his things, which she had hidden from him. I asked the wife about his things and she said she would give them back or she wouldn't give them back until she got one of the VCRs that they owned. She said she only wanted one, but they had owned three. The other officer walked over to the wife's car and looked under the hood to see if he could fix the problem. The husband walked over, took the coil wire out of his pocket and handed it to the officer. He then told his wife that she could have a VCR if he could have his things. She finally agreed and they went into the house. I found out later that his things were narcotics that he was dealing in that she had hidden in the house. As the wife entered the house, I noticed two little girls standing in the doorway watching this drama unfold. They were about 8 and 10 years old, and both of them wore dresses. Each one of them clung to a Cabbage Patch doll. At their feet were two small suitcases. My eyes, couldn't, my eyes couldn't leave their faces as they watched the two people they loved tear each other apart. The woman emerged with her VCR in her arms and went to the car which she had put in a crowded back seat. She turned and told her husband where he could find his things. They agreed to divide their possessions, other possessions, equally. Then as I watched in disbelief, the husband pointed to the two little girls and said, Well, which one do you want? With no apparent emotion, the mother chose the older one. The girls looked at each other. Then the older daughter walked out and climbed into the car. The smaller girl, still clutching her cabbage patch doll in one hand and her suitcase in the other, watched in bewilderment as her sister and her mother drove down the street. I saw tears streaming down her face. And the only comfort that she received was an order from her father to get back into the house as he turned next door to talk with some of his friends. There I stood, the unwilling witness to the death of a family. To the death of a family. You know, as I read this story and, and have personally witnessed similar scenes, I began to wonder, began to wonder if, there, if those of us that utter the phrase, I want a divorce, fully appreciate the problems and the consequences and the price that's to be, to, to be paid as you walk down that path. The consequences of such a decision as we're going to see as we go through this morning are costly indeed. And today what I want to do is continue to examine um, the price that must be paid for those who utter the phrase, I want a divorce, as we continue to address, oh, so you do, huh? So you really want a divorce. And, uh, you know, if you've considered, are considering, or will ever consider divorce as an option to your marital woes, I would suggest that you listen carefully because there is a price that needs to be paid. And uh, as we will see, it's a very high price indeed. In our last session that, that we had when we were together, we noted that God had a very high view of marriage and he has an equally low view of divorce. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, God specifically and implicitly tells us that he hates divorce. He says, I hate divorce. And uh, this statement puts divorce in a, in a select category of behavior that God says that he hates. And as I mentioned, I found 12 such uh, behaviors uh, that God says he hates. And interestingly enough, as we'll go through this, you'll see that most of them, if not all of the 12, find their way into most divorce proceedings. And if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Proverbs chapter 6, and we'll take a look at a list of seven of those items that are found right off the bat. And then we'll look at four more and uh, see how they oftentimes are found in divorce situations. Proverbs chapter 6, God tells us of six things, yes, seven things that he hates. And we read this. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. A hot, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, 
and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and the one who spreads strife among brothers. In this particular passage, we find the first seven that we'll look at. And as I said, there's 12 altogether. And uh, last time we got together, we, we basically just looked at the first one. God says there are six things, yes, seven things that he hates. The first one is haughty eyes. We saw that it was basically an attitude of superiority, an attitude of pride or arrogance, where one person says that, you know what, now they, they somehow believe that they're better than the other. If you've got your Bible still open, look at Proverbs chapter 30, verses 12 through 13, as he continues the thought of what it means to have haughty eyes or a prideful spirit. Chapter 30, verses 12 through 13, we read this, talking about the different types of people. He says, yeah, there is a kind of man who is pure in his own eyes and yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. Saying, you know, there's a kind of person that you'll run into in life and in many divorce situations we find this to be true and that is that there's a kind of person who in their own eyes, they're really not that bad. And in fact, if you just ask them, they may say, well, I'm a, you know, I'm not perfect but I'm really not that bad. And God is saying, you know what? Yeah, but the problem is, you see, you see things from your own perspective. And in many divorce situations, that's exactly what happens. That haughty eye or that proud, proud spirit or prideful spirit or arrogance that says, you know what? I, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than you. And I can give you a hundred reasons why I think I'm better than you. And all of a sudden, we start to put our attention or our focus on how much better we are than someone else. And God says, I hate that. That proud spirit, that arrogance, that haughtiness, you know, pride always comes before a fall. And if you're to work out the difficulties in your marriage, you have got to get to the point where you take your eyes off of your own self-worth, so to speak, and you begin to see your partner as God sees him or her. Not that there's a list of things that you can look at and say, you know what, these things are driving me crazy about you and these aren't true of, and these aren't true of my life. I don't like this, 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 and this about you. And we take our eyes off the fact that, you know what, maybe there are a lot of things that he or she doesn't like about you. And in fact, it wouldn't be that hard to kind of take a poll and ask some of your friends. You know, are you really as perfect as you think you are? And it's interesting to see how that occurs. But you know what, God's saying, man, you know what, get away from that haughtiness or that proud spirit. You know what, and if right now you're in a person that's contemplating a divorce or you're struggling in your marriage, I'll guarantee you that this is true of your relationship. You are looking at your spouse... And you're seeing all the things that you don't like about that person. And then you're looking at yourself and saying, you know what? None of those things are true of me. I'm really a pretty good person. And if you don't believe me, just ask me. <laughs> and I'll be glad to share it with you. See, that's the problem. See, that haughtiness, that proudful spirit. You know, it's interesting, too. And, and this happens on a regular basis. You take a couple who, you know, they start out with nothing. You know, whether, you know the old adage, you know, they don't have two nickels to rub together and all that kind of stuff, Right. They start out with nothing and they both work very hard and one of them goes on to become successful in some area of life. You know, whether one is working so he can pay for the other one to go to school and all of a sudden that one goes to school and becomes a doctor or becomes some professional of some sort. And all of a sudden the professional person is looking at his spouse saying, you know what, I don't really need her anymore. She, she served her purpose, she worked hard, and she got me through school, but now I'm better than her now. See, that's the same arrogance and haughty eyes that God is warning about saying that somehow or another, now you're better than that person. We see this often, and it's a sad situation, but you know, you look in a case where some, I, I, we've got real good friends of ours that he played 14 seasons for the Rams. Fortunately, they got married while they were still at Bowling Green University. He was a, a walk-on there. He was a free agent. He ended up playing 14 years, ended up going to six pro balls. And, and it was hilarious because his wife constantly reminded him, hey, you know what, don't let any of this stuff get to your head because I was there before... I was there during it, and I'll be there after it. And I know all about you that nobody else knows like I know. And what she's saying was true. And it kept him humble to the point of realizing, that, you know what, I am who I am only by the grace of God. And my wife is there by my side, and she compliments me. She's not there as someone who now I no longer need. So that haughty eyes or that proudful spirit wasn't something that was true of their life. And I learned a lot from watching that. Because I, see, I have seen other situations where someone says, you know what, hey, I'm better than you, and I'm doing you a favor by marrying you. 
And that person enters that relationship feeling somehow or another not worthy to be there, but by this person's graciousness, they're married to them. And then they begin to realize that, you know what? Hey, I, tell, I, I used to tell guys all the time they were playing professional sports. You know what? If, 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 if you didn't know her before, just wait till you're done playing and then find your wife for the rest of your life. Because what she's going to be hung up on right now isn't you. It's everything that's involved in what you do for a living. It's all the excitement. It's going to the games. It's sitting there and being one of the people that people look at. It's going afterwards and have people come up to you and want to talk to you. It's, it's being a part of the scene. It's not you, because I know you. <laughs> you know, and, and she'll know you, too, shortly. And when the money's gone and all the glitter and glamour's gone, she's going to be stuck there with you. So do yourself a favor. Don't even start dating until you're nobody again. And then whoever loves you will love you because you're nobody. And however that song goes, whatever. You're nobody until somebody loves you. There you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, number two. God also hates a lying tongue. Now you say, a lying tongue. God says he hates a lying tongue. Let me ask you a question. You've all been to a wedding. What's one of the key parts of a wedding? The reception. No, no, no. <laughs> no. What, what's, one of the, what, what's one of the key elements of a, of a wedding? Huh? Vows. Oh, I thought you said a house. No. All right, that's after. Okay, the vows, okay? And what goes on? Now, how many of you have been to a wedding and you heard people make promises to one another? How many of you remember the promises you made to one another? All right. How many of you kind of go, no? Now, what are some of those promises? I love, honor, cherish, do you promise to love, do you promise to honor, do you promise to cherish, do you promise to obey? What else? Oh, oh, oh. For what? Richer or for poorer, and in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, until death do us part. All right, now how many of you heard those vows being made? All right, those are promises. That's a contract. That's an agreement. See, what's happening here is we have weddings where people sit, like many people at a wedding, and they're going to go, you know, the only reason I'm here is because we should be here. And uh, so we're here to support the family. We're here. Uh, how much longer is this guy going to talk? And uh, when are we going to eat? And, and that's pretty much the majority of people that go to weddings. That's kind of the way that it is. And so what I like to do is when I do a wedding is address those people. Say, look, you know what? Just to let you know, you're actually here for a reason. Not just, you know, a head count so they know how much food to have. But you are here as a witness to what? To the promises that these two people who are standing up here looking at each other, kind of all goo-goo-ga-ga, and they're just kind of like, <laughs> they're just crazy about each other, and they're making these promises to each other, right? I'm going to stay by you for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. I mean, I ain't going nowhere because you are my man, and I'm not going anywhere because I got you, babe. There you go. <laughs> now you're catching on. Good. And, and so, these people are making all these promises to each other. And, and, and stop and think about this. Every divorce involves what? A liar. Someone's a liar. Oh, I know that's not politically correct to make such a, a brass statement as that, but let me just tell it the way that it is so no one will misunderstand what I'm saying. Every divorce involves someone, if not two people, who lie to one another. They have lied to each other. I promise I'll be there. I was just kidding. For better or for worse? Yeah, but not this bad. I mean, actually, you got to change the vows, right? In sickness and in health, I know you're going to get that sick. You know? Oh, well, I mean, like, what's the problem here? See, we, we all want to qualify what we meant when we said those things. Well, I didn't really think that it would get this bad. I don't really think that we'd go through all these things, even though God says, if you get married, you're going to go through difficult times. That's part of being married. And it's part of just being here on earth. I don't know anybody that doesn't go through difficult times at any point in their life. Whether it's in a marriage or it's in a relationship with someone else, whether it's in a business, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a community, a country, a nation, whatever. I mean, we all go through tough times. And the point that we need to get back to is a very simple one, and that is this. When you make a promise to someone, you need to keep it. Because in that passage where God says, I hate, I hate divorce, this is what he says. 
I, you, you know why I hate it? Because, because I have been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. I was there the day you got married. I was there when you made promises to each other. I heard what you said about sickness and in health and richer for poorer, for better, for worse. I was there. I heard it. And now, you know what? You're a liar. You are a liar. You want to bail out of your marriage? There's no way to get around it. But you got to lie. You got to lie and say, you know what? I didn't mean those things when I said it. I didn't really mean those promises that I made. I didn't mean those covenants, that vow that I took. I didn't mean it. What's a vow? I, I, I got an overhead I did once on what, what is a vow. And, and, uh, and, and I just put A-E what? I-O-U. That's what a vow is. A-E-I-O-U. And don't give me that sometimes why, but maybe, or a W. I mean, the point is it's A-E-I-O-U. I owe you. I made you a promise. I need to keep it. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that. You know, keeping one's word has long been, been a, an indicator of one's character. When you made a promise to someone, it was an indication of your character as a person, what that meant when you said it. You know, when you go down through all the reasons that people get divorced, and I heard it all, and I just jotted some down, oh, we just grew apart. We just grew apart. She doesn't meet my needs anymore. You know what? I, I mean, he, he stifles my intellectual growth. I lost my respect for him. He's moody all the time. He's always depressed. I just, I didn't, I just couldn't stand it anymore. All we ever do is argue. I'm not really sure that I loved him in the first place. I just got married to get out of the house, to get away from my parents. I was too young. I didn't even know what I wanted when I got married. I mean, I didn't understand what I was getting into. And then, you know what? And in no way do I want to give an impression that those reasons that are given aren't significant problems. They certainly are. But listen to me. All those problems are fixable. All those problems can be repairable. There is nothing that our God cannot do. There is nothing that's impossible with God. I mean, when a person tells me that it just isn't going to work out anymore, I stop and look at him and think, you know what? Do you even realize this God that you say that you love, how great that he is and what he's able to do? This is the same God that spoke with a word and that universe came into existence. You don't think they can mend your marriage and put it back together again? I mean, I know these are real problems. Well, let's stop and get right back to the basics here for a second. For a person contemplating divorce, let me ask you the question. What about the promises that you made? What about the commitment that you made? If you're a witness at a wedding and you've got friends or family or someone that's thinking about getting a divorce, you know what, what you need to do is you need to get down with them and you need to get in their face and you need to say, listen, I was there the day you got married. I heard the promises that you made. I heard you say that no matter how bad things got, that you'd still be there. No matter how good things got, you'd still be there. No matter how sick someone got, you'd be there. I heard you say that. And I am going to remind you of that because the rest of our society is going to tell you you deserve to be happy. And I'm going to tell you that you deserve to do the right thing because I care enough about you to confront you and tell you the truth. You know, a man or a woman's word is, you know, their worth is only as good as their word. A few weeks ago, did you see how many of you saw Barbara Walters interview Christopher Reeve? Christopher Reeve, you know, the guy who played Superman that got injured, paralyzed in a, in a horseback riding accident. Well, anyway, she interviewed him. I mean, it was, it was incredible what they were going through. He could only talk when the respirator would kick in and fill his lungs with air, and then he learned how to speak. He couldn't move. He can't move. He can't feel anything from his neck down. And she interviewed him, and she, and she interviewed his wife. And it was, it was like just an amazing thing to Barbara Walters that this woman, and they've been only married for two, I think, or three years, three years, I think, that this woman would still be there doing all the things that she was doing. It was like, have you ever, I mean, didn't you ever think about leaving? And it was wonderful. She looked at her and said, that thought never crossed my mind. That thought never crossed my mind. So anybody ever wondering if this gal married him because he was an actor and a celebrity and a movie star and all those things doesn't have to wonder anymore. Because she said, you know what? That thought never crossed my mind. What a powerful statement of what it means to make a commitment, to make a covenant, to make a promise for better or worse, for richer, for poor, and in sickness and in health. I'm not going anywhere. I made you a promise. 
and we're going to ride this thing out together. Man, you know what? Wouldn't our country be a whole lot different if people knew what it meant to make a promise and then to stick to their word? We need to understand that. We need to recognize that for what it truly is. Anything less than that's a lie. Anything less than that, God hates. Anything less than that, but we've only married two years. I didn't know this was going to happen. It doesn't matter. You made a promise. We need to recognize that. The third thing God says he hates are hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood. You know what? Every divorce devastates innocent people. I don't know if you realize it or not, but every divorce devastates innocent bystanders. To me, divorce reminds me of a drive-by shooting. It really does. Because you have, you have a man and a woman who hate each other so much during a divorce that they pull out all their artillery, artillery and they start firing at one another. And you know what happens when they start shooting? You end up hitting innocent bystanders. You drive by and you take a shot and you end up hitting some little three-year-old child out in the front yard. You end up hitting a relative that's sitting inside just minding their own business. You end up shooting a neighbor or a friend. You end up shooting somebody because divorce devastates innocent people. Think about how it devastates children, for example. There was a day not so long ago that parents stuck it out when they were going through a tough time in their marriage for the sake of what? For the sake of their children. I mean, they just say, hey, you know what? I mean, we may not be getting along right now, but for the sake of the kids, we're going to hang in there and we're going to work this thing out. Oh, but we're led to believe that today that's not a good enough reason. Let me ask you a question and think about this. Why do you go to work? Why do you go to work every day? Because you like to eat. That's a good reason. You know, you've got financial obligations. You've got some personal needs that you need to, to take care of. You know, you go to work because you like to eat. Now, let me ask you something. How many of you, I mean, it's, it's kind of like part of being responsible as an adult. How many of you like to go to work every day? Yeah, I didn't think so. Nobody likes to go to work every day. Hardly anybody ever gets up every day and says, Hey, today I'm going again. Zippity-doo-dah. <laughs> hi-ho, hi-ho. No, it's I-O, I-O. It's off to work I go. It's the way that little bumper sticker is. But think about it. You know, so we'd say, hey, you know what? I've got to work because, hey, I've got obligations. I've got a family to support. I've got financial obligations to take care of. I like to eat. I mean, simple things. You know? But no, we're being told today, oh, no, that's not a good enough reason to go to work. Why should you go to work today? Because you get something out of it. You benefit from it. It makes you feel good. Yeah? <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. But see, that's what we're being told. Same thing happens when you go to church. I mean, I mean why do people go to church? I mean, there's some, you know, how about to worship God? There's a good reason to go to church. Or how about to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to go out into the world that they live in and be prepared to deal with people around them so they could see the love of Christ generated through your life and that you could, you could use that as an opportunity to tell them about the greatest thing that they need to know and that is that there's a God out there that loves them and sent his son to die for them. I mean, there, there's another reason to go. To encourage one another. How about to benefit your children? I know people start going to church because it's going to be a benefit to their kids. Now, these same people say, oh, that's not a good enough reason to go. Well, why should we go? Oh, so that you get something out of it. So that you feel better. So that it benefits you. You know what, let me, tell, let, you know what, let, let me just explain something to you. Many things in life we do because it's called being responsible. It's called Responsibility. It's the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do. And there are a lot of things in life that we need to recognize the fact that it's just the right thing to do. Why stay married? For the sake of the children? Oh, absolutely. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. With humility of, of mind, let one another regard each other as more important than him or herself. It's called being responsible. It's called putting other people before you. It's a Christian servant spirit. It's an attitude that Jesus had when he died for us and put us first who despised the shame, and he endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. See, there are some things in life that we do because it's the right thing to do, because of what will happen if we do the right thing in the long run. Now, there's nothing wrong, and listen to me, there is nothing wrong with staying in a marriage to benefit your children. Don't be content with just that. Because there is nothing wrong with wanting your marriage to be better than it is, in addition to staying in it for the sake of your children. You don't have to be content on just saying we're doing this for the sake of our kids and hating every minute of it. 
We're going to do it because it's the right thing to do, but we're also going to do something to make it better. We're not going to be content with it just the way that it is. And we say, oh, but you know, kids will adjust. Let me just tell you something. The facts indicate otherwise. In a register, uh, Orange County Register article, ties that bind in divorce and teen suicide. His article states that adolescent suicide rates have risen 300% in the last 30 years, which, is remarkably, which has a remarkable correlation to the rise in the divorce rate during the same period of time. Children of divorce are more absent from school at a much higher rate, and as a result, they'll do worse as far as schoolwork is concerned and classwork is concerned. Over 10 million children in our country have have experienced or watched their children divorce with one million additional children going through it on, a day, on, a, on an annual basis. And these are some of the findings. Half of the children were entered adulthood as worried, underachieving, self-deprecating, and sometimes angry young men and women. Two out of three females will show such sleeper effects as fears of failure, betrayal in their relationships with men. In other words, they are at a great risk for future failed marriages. Their use of alcohol and other drugs will be substantially higher than that of children from intact families. The economic consequences and impact we talked a little bit about last time, but they will see a 73% drop in the standard of living. It's interesting, this past week, my, my business partner and his wife are going through a situation with friends of theirs where they are, they're separated. And the gal was talking to him and saying, you know what, this is the first month of their separation. He owes her $2,500 to help pay for the, you know, the house and all the bills and stuff like that, and he hasn't paid her a penny. She's down to her last $50. So, you know, you can read statistics like this all you want, and there's no impact, really, until you know somebody who's going through it, and you can say, you know what, that's true. See, these are, these are uh, social scientists. This, this isn't a, a slanted, quote, religious uh, poll that's taken or some research that's done. This is the real world that we live in. This is what's going on around us. Only three out of ten of the children will be described as doing well. Nearly four of the ten will be clearly depressed, not be able to concentrate in school, have trouble making friends, suffer from a wide range of other behavioral problems. Quote, most of them will be on a downward course. Many of these children will become overburdened and frequently firstborn children will wind up assuming far more responsibility than children their age can possibly cope with. And then it goes on and on, and it talks about sexual promiscuity, uh, sexual activity. It talks about a lack of respect for parents as they watch each other tear each other apart. And that lack of respect for their parents carries out the lack of respect for authority in schools, a lack of respect for authority no matter where that you go. There's just a general lack of respect for authority. Why? Because in the home is where that's supposed to be, to, to be nourished and cherished, and that's supposed to be taught. Respect for adults, respect for authority. But you know what? you got kids that can't respect their parents because they're acting like 12-year-olds that are fighting and bickering over somebody's Barbie doll. And that's what happens in a divorce situation. And God says it's devastating to children. And he goes on and on. And you know what? I mean, it, the statistics are overwhelming, but all you got to do is look around you at kids that are going through it with their parents and see how true that it really is. We've got friends right now that are going through it, and their son has just got to the point where he's snapped. He doesn't listen to anybody. He doesn't care about anything. He was a good athlete. He was a good student. Now he's doing terrible in school. He's doing terrible in sports. He's just falling apart. He's an innocent bystander. He had nothing to do with the decision, but his parents have made that decision for him. And said, oh, that's okay. They'll just adjust. No, they won't. They won't adjust. You know, we need to understand that because, you know, if there's one thing that Jesus, that he always went on record of saying, he said, you know what, hey, it'd be better for you if you put a millstone, a big old stone around your neck and you jumped out into the middle of the sea than it is for you to hinder a child to come unto me. God has a tremendous love for children and he hates hands that shed innocent blood. And we need to recognize the fact that children will be hurt by divorce, plain and simple. But you know what, they're not the only ones. I mean, how about friends? If you've had friends that have been divorced, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Friends have to choose sides. Sometimes you don't have that friendship, that couple that you had that you could do things with before are no longer available and you can't do it anymore. And through the ugly process of divorce, you're dragged into the middle of it. Either you're supporting them, you're, chatting, you know, you're taking care of their children. Sometimes you're helping out financially. I mean, there's a price that needs to be paid. And quite often with friends, there's a negative impact as well. And that is that there's a friend in the middle of all of it and one person's leaving one spouse to run off with a friend. It's devastating. I got a, uh, a letter that I saw not too long ago. I want to read this to you. But John and Brad were best friends. 
And Brad got sexually involved with John's wife, and it led to their divorce. Brad ran away with John's wife. They got married. Her name's Kim, and Brad and Kim got married. And 10 years later, he writes this letter to his best friend. He says, I realize too many years have passed by. Nonetheless, I feel I must deal in whatever way I can with the wrong that I've done you and the hurt and the pain that I've brought into your life. It's difficult for me now to comprehend how I could have hurt so many people, including a wife who loved me, my children, and you, my best friend. Passion can really be a blinding thing. Kim and I have carried a lot of guilt. We feel the Lord and his compassion has forgiven us, but there will always be scars as reminders. We are especially thankful that the kids have come through as well as they have, but we realize there are many tough years ahead. They will need our prayers and our guidance. Anyway, old friend, I wanted to write this letter to sincerely apologize to you for the horrible wrong that I've committed. There are no excuses. You are always a good and caring friend. I just let myself get caught up and would not put on the brakes. Frankly, I don't know if I could bring myself to offer forgiveness if the situation were reversed, but I'm led to ask for forgiveness from you. And this is his friend's response. He says, Dear Brad, it's been four months since I received your letter, and I need to respond. I didn't answer sooner because, frankly, I really never fully expected an apology from you and had no clue as to how I would reply. First things first, you are and have been forgiven by me for about two years. This is ten years later. For eight years, he struggled with what happened. That's not uncommon. It took that long. It took eight years for the Lord to bring me to the place where I could see that my hatred for you and what you did was destroying my life. At that point, because God commanded it and because it was consuming me, I gave in and forgave. Since then, my life has greatly improved. What your letter has done has caused me to reflect on the past ten years. The two things that stand out the most are the loss of my boys and being betrayed by you. The times, now, the times you now take for granted with Dale and Eric are moments that were mine. That's his son's. The good, the bad, the happy, and the sad are all times that should have been mine, and I'll never retrieve that time, and neither will my son's. Betrayal is a hard thing to forgive and to recover from. The two people I trusted and loved the most hurt me the most. For some reason, Brad, I've always felt you were more responsible than Kim for the circumstances. She tried to warn me, and I never heard it, but our friendship was somehow special, and I put far too much faith in it and never saw what was going on. You really blindsided me. Until recently, I've had a very hard time getting close to any other male friend. This letter's turned out to be much more personal than I thought it would be. There was a long period when I was sure I would never recover, but let me tell you what God has done. I have been blessed far beyond what I ever could have hoped for. My relationship with Ellen is quite special, and it's what I always pictured marriage being. Kurt is super, now it's his new son. Through him, God is giving me back the years that I missed with Dale and Eric. Also, the relationship I have with Dale and Eric is warm, loving, and extremely close. Brad, I thank you for your letter. I know it was hard for you to write, and I appreciate it. Asking for forgiveness is probably the easiest part of the process. Seeing the results of your action has got to be the tough part. There was a long time my fondest desire was to see you burn in hell for what you did. It's taken the Lord a long time to bring us both around, but he has, and I no longer feel ill will towards you. In fact, I often miss our friendship. I pray the Lord will bless you and that he will give you peace of mind. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. And you can't get around it in the divorce. Children are impacted. Friends are impacted. Parents are impacted when one of their children moves home and sometimes with their own children and as grandparents, now they're dealing with a broken, broken relationship and their children have to move back home. Why? Because their standard of living has dropped 73% and they can't afford to live on their own anymore. Well, what's a parent to do? And most parents, as they've gotten older, they can't really afford it. But what's a parent to do? When your child's marriage falls apart and you've got grandchildren that you love and care about and grandparents are thrown in the middle of all of it. And what are they supposed to do through all of it? And it's a very difficult thing to say the least. And they're innocent bystanders. They had nothing to do with it. And now not only do they not get to see a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law that maybe they have grown to love and accept as one of their own. There are many times where now they can't even see their grandchildren anymore as a result of someone's selfishness. You see, God hates hands that shed innocent blood because divorce, there always is the shedding of innocent blood. We're all impacted. We're all affected by it. In business today, we've got one of our, one of our um, suppliers who is going through a divorce. 
And frankly, we've been, you know, as, as, as good as you can be with a person going through it, we've befriended him, we've shared with him, we've spent time with him, we've, we've had him come over on Father's Day when he was down and depressed, we, you know, we had him come, and we spent time together, and, 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 and you know what? And, and he's doing an absolutely horrid job. He's killing our business. He's not doing what he's supposed to do to support us and to be the kind of you know, supplier that he needs to be, and he, he's killing us. And it's difficult to deal with, and we want to show compassion, and we want him to see the love of Christ in our life. And yet, on the other hand, you want to sit him down and say, hey, you know what? You're killing us too. You're not doing what you're supposed to do when businesses are affected by it and people's lives are affected by it and you're affecting my life, my partner's life, our children and our wives and our family and everybody. You're affecting everything because of what you're going through. Man, and I don't want to, be, I don't want to show a lack of compassion and we haven't had that conversation, but God reminded me, you know what? You cannot get divorced without it affecting someone else. Hands that shed innocent blood. How about a heart that devises wicked plans? God hates it. A heart that devises wicked plans. You know what? I have never seen anyone get divorced accidentally. You can't wake up one day and say, oh, today looks like a cloudy day. Let's get divorced. That's not it at all. What happens in divorce? There's a premeditated plan to get divorced by one or both people. The plan is on. Now, there'll be people, older people now, what they do is they say, well, we stay together for the sake of the children, but for those 25 years that we were together for the sake of the children, we hated each other every minute of the day, and we couldn't wait till they were old enough, and now that they're old enough, now we're getting divorced. What have they been doing? For 20 years, planning an escape. That's all that they've been doing. They haven't been making their marriage better. They've been content on planning how to get out of it. You know, I told you about the friend that I talked to who said, yeah, you know what, we're, we're separated and we're getting a divorce. And I say, hey, have you thought about counseling? Have you thought about trying to make it work? Have you thought about this and that? Oh, no, it's too late. I've been planning this for nine years. You've been planning this for nine years? Yeah, well, you know, why don't you take some of that same energy and make it work out? Why don't you take some of that same energy of planning to get out of it and make your marriage better? Can you imagine what marriage would be like if we took the same amount of effort and energy and the same creativity? I mean, because I've seen it all, man. I've seen guys that own businesses. I've seen them take funds and transfer them somewhere else and hide assets and do all kinds of things. I've seen people that start their own bank accounts and start taking money and siphoning money off here and putting it over there in a bank account so that they're getting ready for the stash they're going to need when they're going to end their marriage. And they, I mean, they got this thing all planned out and they've been doing it for years. And God's saying, gosh, you know what? God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. And every marriage involves somebody planning to get out. We also see this. That God hates feet that run rapidly to evil. Feet that run rapidly to evil. You know what? And there's no way you can get around it. And we're going to talk about it a little later. And the simple fact is this. You know what? 80 to 85% of divorces involve another person. 80 to 85%. Feet that run rapidly to evil. You know what that's all about? Hey, as soon as I get out of this one, I'm running to you, babe. The same guy. The same guy that owes $2,500 to his wife has just been separated for a month. And they've got four small children. Has a girlfriend waiting for him in Texas. He had a business where he traveled all over the country. Can't help but think about it. God hates feet that run rapidly to evil. She's waiting. How many times do you see a person who gets divorced because somebody else is waiting? Oh, we're just waiting for the divorce to be final. Oh, okay, that's all it's going to take, huh? Feet that run rapidly to evil. You can't get around it. God hates false witness who utters lies. Every divorce involves some deposition of somebody on someone's part to make someone look bad. Every divorce does. Whether it's the parents, the grandparents, whether it's friends, whether it's family, someone's being deposed by an attorney somewhere and they're talking about what a crummy spouse this person is. What a crummy spouse. What a crummy provider. And the latest invoked thing to do is, you know what, somehow let's come up with some, some form of sexual molestation or child abuse or something, man, so we can really nail him or her. And if that doesn't work, let's go the drug abuse or the, or the uh, alcohol abuse uh, direction. Somehow we've got to get, you know, we've got to win. And God hates false witnesses who utter lies. Every divorce involves it. Man, I'll tell you, the truth is, is that, that, that hardly a lie, there, there's hardly a lie that hasn't been uttered during a divorce process. I mean, you hear them all. God hates it. God hates one who spreads strife among brothers. 
This is particularly true of Christians. This is particularly true of the church. This is true when a family or a marriage is falling apart in the church body, and you know what happens? you got all kinds of people that are choosing sides. Did you hear what he did? Did you hear what she did? Did you hear what's going on in their relationship? Oh, you know what? And then we, we, we try to generate as much, you know, we, we try to generate as much support for our side as if God cares about how many people are on your side or her side, his side or her side. As if God cares about, oh, okay, you got 80% of the people voting for you. God could care less about that. He hates it. He hates one who spreads strife among brothers. He hates the whole scene. It's ugly. It's nasty. There's nothing good that comes of any of it. He also hates sacrifices burned to other gods. And you know what? And basically this boils down to, hey, who comes first in your life? Does God come first or do you come first? You know God hates divorce, but does that really make any difference to you? For the person that says they love the Lord with all their hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and for the person that says they love God and they put his will before their will, God says, if you really love me, you obey my commandments. And I hate divorce. You work it out. You make it right. I hate people that lie, and you lied. Make that right. I hate people that, that shed innocent blood, and you're doing that by doing this. Don't go through with it. Do you really love God? For those who say that they put their faith and trust in Christ, for those who say that God's will is more important than theirs, not my will, Lord, but yours be done, for the people that put themselves in that position and believe that, does it really make a difference when it comes down to applying it in your everyday life? See, what he's saying is God hates anything that comes before him and before his word. He also hates hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. Man, and there's so many hypocrites that run around saying, I love God, but I'm not being obedient in my personal life. There's so many of us who are hypocritical and say, you know what, it's really not my fault in my marriage. And God's saying, yes, it is. You're partially responsible. You've contributed to it. You need to make it right. You need to accept your responsibility and do what you've got to do. Stop being whitewashed on the outside and you're filthy, dirty within. And let me tell you something that God knows about you and me that sometimes we'll never know about each other. He knows everything. He knows what's going on in your marriage. He knows who's contributed what. He knows who's responsible. And he knows who needs to take corrective action steps. And if you are responsible, God hates hypocrisy. Jesus was harder on the religious leaders than anybody that ever came in contact with on the face of the earth. People on the outside thought they were all high and mighty. And God said, man, you're a dirt ball within. And I know it, and you know it, and now it's time that I expose it so everybody else knows it. God hates garments that are covered with wrong, and that specifically has to do with sexual immorality, and we'll talk about that later on. Now, this is interesting. God says he loves Jacob, but he hated Esau. Now, if you know the story, Esau basically sold out his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. And you see, and what God's saying is this. You know what? You say that you value these things highly. You value me. You value my word. You value my principles. You value my commandments. But you know what? The moment that something comes up that's going to benefit you temporarily, you throw everything of value out the window. You're selling out for a can of Denny Moore stew. I mean, is that like, if that's not the grossest thought you can put in your mind, I mean, what a weird picture. Think about it. I mean, a can of stew. I mean, and that's what he's saying is that God's saying, you know what, and here's what happens. See, divorce always, it, it, it always tempts us to have a temporary benefit. I'm going to benefit from it today. And I don't care what the long-range picture is. I'm going to sell out everything that's valuable and important tomorrow, and I'm going to benefit today. And God's saying, don't sell out for a can of stew. I got something better for you. And then he goes on, and we already said, God hates divorce. And he really does. And you know, and as I went through all of these things, I was thinking, you know what, why does God hate divorce so much? And I believe it's simple. Because God loves people. And divorce destroys people. There's no way you can get around it. People are destroyed by divorce. Children are destroyed. The husband and wife are destroyed. Friends and family are destroyed. Creditors and businesses are destroyed. It involves lying. It involves cheating. It involves grossly exaggerating what other people have done. I mean, let's face it. God loves people. And he demonstrated that love when he sent Christ to die for us, even though while we were still sinners, he did that. See, God loves people. That's why God hates divorce. Now, if you've been divorced, it's not the unpardonable sin, and you need to recognize that. If you've been divorced for any reason that is not a biblical reason, and we'll talk about that later, but basically adultery and abandonment 
or desertion by non-believing spouse are the two things that God says are exceptions to what he hates about divorce. But he still hates divorce. He's saying if you've been divorced for any other reason, then all you need to do, like any sin, is confess it before God. I'm sorry I did what I did. I made a huge mistake. Forgive me for it. And God says he's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive you from all of your transgressions. He's willing to do that if you're willing to admit what you did was wrong. For those of you who are contemplating divorce, man, I just beg you to consider the evidence. Consider the cost that you're going to pay. And I know that it's hard because it's emotional, but man, I'll just, I beg you, we plead with you to consider it. There's a letter, I'm going to close with this, from a gal who I think eloquently speaks on behalf of 10 million children who have gone through divorce. 10 million children and 1 million every year that continue to go through it and they continue to hear the words of one of their parents that say, hey, honey, your mom or your dad and I are getting divorced. And I want to close with this letter, and I want you to think about it. And I want you to think about the impact that divorce has on our nation, on your family, on your children. But she writes this. The title of it is, That's the Way Life Goes Sometimes. She says, When I was 10, my parents got a divorce. Naturally, it was my father who told me about it because he was my favorite. Now, notice that she didn't say that she was his favorite. Honey, I know it's been kind of a bad. I, I know it's been kind of bad for you these past few days, and I and I don't want to make anything worse. But there's something I have to tell you, honey. Your mother and I have got a divorce. But daddy, oh, I know you don't want this, but it has to be done. Your mother and I just don't get along like we used to. I'm already packed, and my plane is leaving in a half an hour. But but daddy, why do you have to leave? Oh well, honey, your mother and I can't live together anymore. Well, no, I know that, but I mean, why do you have to leave town? Oh, well, I, I've got someone waiting for me in New Jersey. But, Daddy, will I ever see you again? Oh, sure you will, honey. Your mother, oh, sure you will, honey. We'll work something out. But what? I mean, you'll be living in New Jersey, and I'll be living here in Washington. Maybe your mother will agree to you spending two weeks in the summer and two weeks in the winter with me. Well, why not more often? Oh, I don't think she'll agree to two weeks in the summer, two weeks in the winter, much less more than that. Well, it can't hurt to try. Can't you ask her? Oh, I know, honey, but we'll have to work it out later. My plane leaves in 20 minutes, and I've got to get to the airport. Now, I'm going to get my luggage, and I want you to go to your room so you don't have to watch me. And no long goodbyes either, okay? Okay, Daddy, but, well, goodbye. Don't, don't forget to write. Oh, I won't. Goodbye. Now, go to your room. Okay, Daddy, I don't, I don't want you to go. Oh, I know, honey, but I, I have to. But why? Oh, you wouldn't understand. Yes, I would. Oh, no, you wouldn't. Oh, well, goodbye. Goodbye. Now go to your room. Hurry up. Okay, well, I guess that's the way life goes sometimes. Oh, yes, honey. That's the way life goes sometimes. After my father walked out the door, I never heard from him again. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. I think God hates divorce. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. God, I just pray that each one of us that are married, for those even considering being married, that they realize the responsibility, that all of us realize the responsibility that we took on when we made promises and vows to one another. Not just vows that were witnessed by friends and family, but more importantly, those that are witnessed by you. And you hold us accountable for our actions. You tell us that we need to take responsibility for our decisions. God, we thank you that you are a God of compassion, that you do forgive sin. But God, may we never forget the scars and the consequences of our selfishness. God, help us to understand that you want what's best for us, that you love us more than we'll ever know. You loved us enough to send your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. There's no one on the face of the earth that would be willing to do something like that. And you've done that. God, we just look at divorce and we realize why you hate it so much. Because we see how it destroys people. Father, I just pray that each one of us that are married will not be content on just sticking together for the sake of the children, but also to make our marriage everything that you intend for it to be. Give us wisdom and guidance. And most importantly, as we learn principles that will help us in our marriage, that you also will give us the strength and the desire to apply it in our everyday life. And we just thank you and praise you for what you can do 
because you are a God with whom it, it, nothing is impossible because all things are possible with you. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.